Grace and peace to you. From God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There's just some methods that have stood the test of time. There's some things that predate the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States, and one of those is the Lutheran Confession of 1517. We've had a confession and a way of doing things for over 500 years, including how you put together a a sermon. When times are turbulent through pandemics, wars, recessions, depressions, racial tension, and just about everything else that Western civilization has had to throw at it, the church has shined through it all. As a matter of fact, the church has been the, the heartbeat and the conscience of civilization throughout the world. Since Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven. In a time where wearing a mask is considered a piece of patriotism, and not wearing a mask is considered an act of sedition, I venture not into political discourse this morning. But in good Lutheran tradition, come back to the Word of God from St. Matthew's Gospel. And with that comes a classic three-part Lutheran outline. The Scriptures admonish us, the Scriptures lead us to Christ, and the Scriptures challenge us to take action as we depart from this sanctuary this morning. There's just some things that work, and they work to keep your preacher out of the, out of the weeds today as well. Two groups come to Jesus in Matthew chapter 22. Two groups of people that have nothing in common except how angry they are at Jesus. They want him to say something thoughtless so they can trap him politically, so that they can go back to the people in authority and say, Jesus said this, what do you think? Jesus is a revolutionary or Jesus is a religious zealot. So the Herodians and the Pharisees put together a political action committee and they have their route to destroy Jesus. His crowds are bigger than there. He has more potential votes, more power. They see their influence diminishing as his crowd increases. And their control may be getting less and less, which of course will harm and hinder their economics. Their money would go away. So in good political form, as politics makes strange bedfellows, the Herodians and the Pharisees, they come to Jesus. And then he sugarcoat all of this stuff with all this kind of flowery garbage. We know what a good guy you are, Jesus. We know that you don't care what anyone thinks. We know that you're the man. So tell us plainly. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Questions like this are the reason why your wife tells you, gentlemen, please don't speak politics in the backyard as you're socially distanced. Don't bring religion or politics up around the kitchen table because questions like this don't really have good answers. You're in trouble one way or you're in trouble the other. And in this, there's an unholy alliance seeking to politically bring Jesus down and to lift up their own base of voters and influence. For the Herodians, paying taxes is a sign of patriotism. They found power in allying with Rome. 
And with that came money and influence and power. If Jesus says, no way, paying taxes is lame, then they cornered him and trapped him against the empire. But the Herodians were in bed with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were on the other end of the political spectrum. They thought that paying taxes was an act of idolatry. Taxes paid for emperor worship. Taxes paid to the state continued to move forward the state's religious agenda. So to refuse to pay taxes was a form of religious righteousness. Sounds a little bit like this in my context. Pastor, we know that you're a good dude and that you get along with everybody else. What do you think? Should we wear a mask or should we not? Sometimes there's just no right answer. They come to Jesus, and he refuses to give them the easy answer and refuses to be tricked by them. Think about how much of our political discourse is healthy these days. How much is useful? How much listening do we do as, as a nation? Do we understand what we stand for? Do we understand who we are and from whence we've come? Do we know the story of America? When everybody seems to be talking and nobody seems to be listening, there are breakdowns. Long ago, I read a comment, and I've held that as kind of a principle of how to get along with people, and it goes like this. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Right on. Meaning that there's a whole lot of listening that needs to be done before there's a whole lot of talking. So perhaps on July 5th of 2020, we should listen to the Lord and His Word, processed in our own historical context, and move in a less polarized manner as a country, and the church be the voice of Jesus, and not aligned primarily with the sense of political values. Jesus knows the score. He knows what's in their heart. We don't have that luxury when we speak with other people or listen to them. So Jesus brings these insightful words and wins the day. He says, whose portrait and whose inscription is this? Caesar's, they replied. Then pay to Caesar's what is Caesar's? And pay to God what is God? The Herodians and the Pharisees had zero interest in aligning people around a greater good. Rather, they sought to hold on to their own power. And what frightened them was Jesus' power was growing and Jesus' influence was growing. And Jesus was bringing people together like nobody they had ever seen. Jesus did justice. Jesus loved mercy. Jesus walked humbly. And the Pharisees and the Herodians and the crowds had yet to see Jesus' finest moment. For the crowd would dissipate, the politics would be lost for Jesus, and he would be dead on a cross. But dead on a cross meant that this word would come to pass from John 3, 14 and 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him has eternal life. 
Jesus was never elected to be the savior of the world. Jesus was anointed and appointed of his father in heaven to be the savior of the world. The savior of Herodians and Pharisees, the savior of Republicans and Democrats, the savior of Panta Ta Ethne, all people groups, all ethnicities, all languages, all tribes, all skin tones, all background. When Jesus died, he died for all. And the forgiveness of sins that he won unites all people together around him more than any monarch, autocrat, dictator, senator, commissioner, or any other official. The power of Jesus' love for us is the single greatest unifier in the history of humanity. And ultimately, that is revealed not in a ballot box, but in heaven. When all of the human refuse is burned up and done away with, then this picture will come to pass from Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked up, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Jesus was above being tricked that day because the day was coming where he would be on the cross and he would draw all people unto himself to preserve the promise of the day when all humanity would be brought together under the umbrella of the love of Jesus. Alexis de Tocqueville in his book Democracy in America wrote these words. The preservation of America's traditional religion is one of the most important tasks of democratic statesmanship. Indeed, religion should be considered the first of America's institutions, and even that it is necessary to maintain Christianity at all costs. Three-part outline, classic Lutheranism, 503 years in the making. A little bit of law, a whole lot of gospel, and a challenge from which to leave this morning, whether you're in your home or whether you're with us here in the sanctuary. Three pieces for us to think about this morning. First, church in North America, Church of the West, we've had it easy. Since the 1990s, almost idyllic. It's time to toughen up, church. We are people of the cross. Our Lutheran forefathers left Scandinavia and Germany because of religious intolerance and religious persecution. People today leave congregation and churches because the music isn't to their liking. Our people got on boats to come across the Atlantic because their confession of faith and who they were in Christ meant more to them than any other piece of their lives. The church of North America needs to toughen up a little bit and even in the time of a pandemic be the heartbeat and conscience of a nation. 
be anchored and rooted in those things, not of election cycles, but to be rooted in the things of eternity. The word and the promise of God and the scriptures of God. It's time for the church, preaching to myself, to toughen up a little bit. Not politically, but in the word and the promise of God. Secondly, the challenge is for the church to stay on point. Our message is this message this morning, the message of Jesus and him crucified. The church muddles in politics and it always comes away dirty and corrupt. We proclaim Christ. We speak scriptures and we do so with conviction and courage. And sometimes it's a challenge to stay on point because itchy ears want to hear what they want to hear. But the call of the church through the voice of God in the person of Jesus is to stay on point and point people to Christ. Stay on message. Because the power of God unto salvation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter asked what was going on and how it worked. Goes right back to the charismatic gospel. Jesus did good things. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He suffered, died, was crucified, and on the third day he rose again, and then he ascended into heaven. That's the point. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. Stay on point. And finally, and perhaps the greatest challenge is that Christians are called to see the world through a distinctively Christian worldview. Jesus held serve when he said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Perhaps if our worldview was a little more Christian and a little less political, we would have a broader and more authoritative platform from which to speak. What we do as Christians in culture and in our nation We live out our values. We live out our faith. And in that, we point to our Savior. And living out our values and our faith and living in the name of Jesus marks us not by political affiliation, but as followers of Jesus Christ. And then he who said what we are uses us as what he says we are. Jesus says, you all are the light of the world. You all are the salt and the seasoning of society. One sermon, three parts. Just how Professor Schmelder taught me at seminary so many years ago. But there's one more piece that I would be remiss if I did not go back to for just a moment. And it goes back to Alexis de Tocqueville's comments. And while they are insightful, there's one thing that history has borne out. And that is that political leaders cannot maintain Christianity at all costs. (laughs) Only Christians can do that. Only we can do that. 
And perhaps that's our call in this moment of our country's history and in our lives as Christian citizens. To give ourselves, as St. Paul writes, to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord, knowing that that work is never in vain. God bless us as members of Christ and citizens of this great nation. And God grant us peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.